0: Welcome to Over the Air Christian Podcast. Uh, we were tracking down church divisions on the way to find authentic and meaningful unity of the church, all between evangelicals, charismatics, and Catholics. <music> If we were to speak of true and authentic, meaningful unity for the church, we may have to address the roots of what has divided us. How church is divided into denominations and movements in the first place. Now I would like to turn to the Bible with you and read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10-17. This is what it says, starting from verse 10, written by the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there will be no divisions among you. Pay attention now, the Bible is talking about division. But that you be united. There's that word again, unity. Be united in the same mind and the same purpose. What's the purpose of our mind to unite on? We'll get to that. Verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Cephas here is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ Jesus divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of the Apostle Paul? Uh, This whole time it was the Apostle Paul himself talking, rhetorical question from him. Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name, Paul, and not Jesus? The answer is no. Why then? Would anyone identify themselves as a follower of the leaders, like Peter or Apollos or Paul? Or why would anyone identify themselves as Lutheran or Calvinists or Wesleyans by their names? Was Martin Luther crucified for anyone? Should anyone be baptized in the name of John Calvin? Well, we know the answer to that. Of course not. No. Christ's followers were divided by the name of the leaders they followed. That's what Paul was talking about here in the Bible. Almost every church movement had their founders, almost. And that's where evangelical denominations come from, mostly. That's the same kind of division that Paul spoke about in the Bible here. They were all baptized in the name of Jesus, including the ones Paul baptized. And Paul was speaking to all of them. Paul says, For each one of you individually or separately is saying, I follow this one, and I follow another one, and I follow the other one, even though they were all baptized in Jesus, but they thought they were followers of particular leaders, and then the body of Christ was divided. And Paul was writing the Bible to address this kind of division to renew unity. And the Apostle Paul was incredibly wise in addressing this to the church by Chloe's report in in 1 Corinthians, because individual problems that go unchecked will quickly mutate into masses of the same problem. Individuals collectively become groups. One problem will become many problems. One person who thinks themselves belonging to Paul incorrectly would become many who thought they belonged to Paul outcomes an entire group of Pauline followers. Had the Apostle Paul not spoken up there, it wouldn't surprise anyone that years down the road outcomes groups of Catholic Christians or Pauline Christians or Apollos Christians. But Paul immediately stopped that and stopped any risk of pockets of Christians who call themselves I am Pauline, I'm Peterist, I'm Apollosian or whatever. Paul spoke up and stopped the division was Christ divided then in this way? That's what Paul was addressing in the Bible. And that's the nature of denominational groups in a similar fashion, where evangelical Christians commonly identify themselves by their founders, under whom followers name themselves, though baptized Christians that they were, as uh, Lutherans or Calvinists or Wesleyans, by the name of the leaders that they follow. Like Catholics Peter, and, and Apollos, and Paul. Uh, this dynamic is very unique to the evangelical Protestants. You wouldn't find this type of sectarian naming convention among the Catholics or even the Charismatics. It's really only unique to evangelical Protestants that have this naming convention, like Lutheran, Calvinist, Wesleyan, etc., etc. Many other groups. And the first chapter of the Corinthian letter addressed this kind of issue of division and unity this way. uh, Let's keep reading. Paul continues from verse 14. Thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say or mistaken further that you were baptized in my name. Paul's sense of regret here isn't about baptizing anyone. His regret is in the misunderstanding that may come about from believers that he baptized. They thought they were followers of whoever baptized them. Okay, So if Paul baptized them, they thought they belonged to Paul. If Peter or Apollos baptized them, they thought they belonged to Peter and Apollos. Thank God it wasn't out of Paul's baptism that he was misunderstood they were his followers rather than Jesus'. Thank God Paul still had an opportunity to address this and now recorded it in the Bible for us. Next comes the peculiar part. Paul went on to explain, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The first time I read this, I was shocked. Jesus sent to preach, but not to baptize. That's what Paul is saying, for him at least. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Wow, that's just great. Decades of evangelicals were built on a great commission to usher the imminent return of Jesus' coming king, who said, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them. Jesus sent his disciples to baptize them in the name of Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. And then Paul turns around and says, Jesus didn't send me to baptize. He sends me to preach. So the apostle Paul threw this wrench into the whirlwind and said, Jesus didn't send to baptize, but sent me to preach. That's what Paul was saying. The resolution to this contradiction is found just after the same verse in the Bible. 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Paul's primary objective of the gospel is in the power of Christ on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. That's the power. That is the gospel. And the fruit of the gospel by preaching is baptism that comes after. Baptism in the water is the physical act of commitment that acknowledges the power of Christ by his shed blood on the cross being preached by Paul and because Paul was sent. This power on the cross by Christ is in the forgiveness of sins, of course, You may even call this a legal power by the justice system set by God. A power to forgive sins is the power of Jesus on the cross. Obedience to the gospel of Christ on the cross that is preached demands baptism. Let me just say that one more time. Obedience to the gospel of Christ on the cross that is preached demands baptism. Obedience to the gospel demands baptism. No preaching, no baptism. That's the bottom line. Paul's objective here is to preach the gospel in order to communicate and to magnify the power of Christ on the cross and the harvest of which will result in or manifest it out of baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Preaching and then comes the baptism. Baptism would be in vain if the preaching of the gospel was unclear, hence causing the misunderstanding. And that's what the Apostle Paul was addressing. Clear preaching is defined by the power of Christ on the cross. For the Apostle Paul, the preaching of the gospel in the name of Jesus precisely precedes the command to baptize. It is of utmost importance to preach the name of Jesus precisely and clearly. And that clear preaching of the name of Jesus precedes the command to baptize, for Paul at least here, what he's, by what he's saying. To prevent misunderstanding wrought in the baptism, as seen here in this case. Clear preaching, precise preaching, prevents misunderstanding. That could happen even after the baptism of believers. This is very important. Precise preaching prevents misunderstanding. Preaching comes before baptism. No preaching, no commission, no baptism. Jesus preached plenty from Sermon on the Mount before commanding to baptize. So this is from 1 Corinthians 1. I have two remarks here at this juncture on church unity and division. Number one, A simple takeaway from this part of the Bible is this. Clear preaching in the name of Jesus is important. And so is baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We preach so that we may baptize. And I would like to say this again very clearly for everyone listening in. Preaching in the name of Jesus is essential. No podcasting or television program or live streaming can ever replace that. Granted, if church attendance were down, there's no point in preaching in an empty church anyway. And if you really want to bear fruit even outside the enriching soil of the church, through books or publications or radio stations, television or podcasts, internet, whatever else, you might as well move preaching out of the church, which, by the way, is a type of medium, just like how the Bible was documented. And that would lend rhetoric to the first part of the conversation in Holy Post episode uh, 452. Because part of the conversation in there was, thanks to the pandemic, even though the pandemic only made the critique more obvious of a problem that was already there, people aren't even in church listening to preaching anyway. Might as well move preaching out of the church, which begs the question, what qualifies as preaching and what isn't? Uh, whether preaching is central piece of worship gathering or its format or delivery, that's a separate issue. As for me, Jesus sends to preach. That settles all the matters in my mind. To preach is the goal to unify on, according to verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. To preach precisely the gospel of Jesus according to his power on the cross, that should be what's on our mind, and that is the thing that we should unite on. Had there been division of any kind or at any scale, unite on preaching of the power of Christ on the cross. That's a really important and profound and a sure starting point of unity. When Paul says, be united in the same mind and purpose, he is speaking on preaching here. The power of Christ on the cross. To unite by preaching the power of Christ on the cross, of course. Begin unity. On preaching the power of Christ on the cross precisely to prevent division and misunderstanding among believers. No matter the church denomination or banner, Lutheran or Calvinist, Catholic or charismatic. This is a very worthwhile starting point. If we can even unite to preach together practically from the power of Christ on the cross on a doctrinal level, just start there. That's a great starting point, if you ask me. At least this would honor the Bible's command. And that process may naturally route out false teachers of any kind as well. Because later in chapter 15 of the same letter, 1 Corinthians, there were pockets of Christian believers who denied the power of Christ on the cross. That's the resurrection. That was also addressed later. To renew preaching is critically important at this time. Since I'm sure plenty of churchgoers have noticed by now, through the pandemic, no one has to attend church physically just for the preaching or teaching. Therefore, gathering and worship must carry some other vital significance. More on that subject another time. Second remark, also from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, regarding division, unity, and more precisely on baptism. Baptism practically leads to membership of the church, and therein you have your denominational alignment. Wherever you get baptized, that's where your church membership resides, generally speaking. Uh, if you're baptized at a Baptist church, automatically you become a Baptist member. If you are baptized at a Brethren or Mennonite church, then you have your Mennonite or Brethren membership. And if you're baptized at a Lutheran, Anglican, Calvinist, there is your membership as well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's the same kind of divisive dynamic happening here in First Corinthians about baptism and membership under a leader. In 1 Corinthians 1, among each of them, they were baptized by Paul, and they thought they were under Paul, as in some of their baptisms exposed the people's divisiveness and misunderstanding one by one, which Paul had to address in the Bible. Paul was saying, is Christ divided among you? Thank God I didn't baptize too many of you to cause any more misunderstanding in case you ended up thinking that you're supposed to be a Pauline Christian like you would a Lutheran Christian or a Pauline Christian or a Calvinist Christian. Paul is saying, no, you belong to Jesus Christ. Don't say to yourself or to each other that you belong to Paul or Cephas or Apollos, etc. In the same way, you would not say so being under Luther or Calvin or Wesley. On and on and on, identified by your baptism, or church membership that way. This is an inner spiritual matter that cannot be reflected by a baptism certificate. And that's how this part of the Bible speak into the subject of unity and division. These two words are in there. The issue which Paul had addressed here in 1 Corinthians 1 is the same kind of misunderstanding or division that can still easily find its way into our contemporary evangelical church world today. Our labels may have changed. For Paul in his time, it was Apollos and Peter and Paul himself. Today, our labels may have changed by many denominations, since God had done plenty of amazing things in 2,000 years past from Paul's time in the Bible. So there are now many denominations. But what Paul was teaching here isn't as archaic or as irrelevant as you may think. Even today, the divisive dynamic can be found amongst genuine Christians today. Knowing the power of Christ on the cross far outweigh more significantly than denominational differences. I think this is what Francis Chan is trying to say when you look at the way the others know and love the Lord and his word, you can tell they know the power of Christ on the cross. It wasn't just about denominational labels or banners or whether we're under this or under that. There's something remarkable about that love for the Lord and his word. Believers and pastors all must take up the charge to safeguard doctrinal teachings. That responsibility is undeniable by God's call. Do not let theology or doctrinal education become a stumbling block over which you divide the body of Christ that is the church, in the sense of dividing one believer under certain leader or denominational label being one type or other believers being another type. That is the caution being addressed here. So as to say one belongs to this and the other to that, is Christ divided again? Just like here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we may not baptize anyone in the name of Paul or Caphas or Luther or Calvin. Good grief, I hope not. But for good reasons, we do have institutionalized church membership denominations, which for the most part are often the legacy of their founders. That kind of subdivision, membership by baptism under a leader's name, that kind of dynamic is very unique to the Protestant movement and the Evangelical Church. That isn't found among the Catholic order either. If you're Catholic, you're Catholic, whichever diocese you find yourself in. And for the Pentecostal and Charismatics, you could hardly even name any founding leader at all. The entire movement was united by a common experience, tongues of prophecy. And behind that experience, presumably each, individually had been an act of the same god of the same bible as a result of christ on the cross by the holy spirit's power that's also a point of theological contention between evangelicals and charismatics when it comes to cessationism and had these experience been genuinely of god and of the bible regardless of affirmation that comes from other christian groups or leaders they ought to also exhibit the marks of a born-again believer according to the same Bible, without a doubt. Like it says in Romans 12, with sincere love, abhorring evil, hanging on to what is good, do not let go of what is good, fully devoted to loving others. Since according to 1 Corinthians 12-13, the greatest gift, the great gift of the Spirit will always be love for God above and through God a love for others as well. A gift much, much greater than even any gift of tongues of prophecy. Love that is faithful, patient, kind, that doesn't fail. A love for God above and through God, a love for others as well. And no one can say from a clear conscience, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord, unless it is by the Holy Spirit. Uh, today if you're an evangelical christian then within that circle you can you can further identify yourself down in a narrower form whether you're Baptist or Reformed, Methodist or Presbyterian, Anglican or Mennonite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And within that, you can cut it down even further. Some members side differently. Are you more of a Calvinist or Wesleyan? Of the five points, are you 40% Calvinist, 20% Arminian? The rest of it gives you the, oh, I'm not so sure. It's like it's like asking someone, are you vegetarian or are you a vegan? You look at the other person, it's like, what's the difference? That's the same kind of divisive dynamic happening in churches. That's how evidently in our churches is to be addressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians from verse 17 and on, talking about baptism and the way believers were divided by naming conventions. And I find hope in the way the Apostle Paul addressed to it in 1 Corinthians. This here is the way the Bible speaks very precisely on unity and division among churches and groups of individual believers. Hence my two remarks, Back to the question, is unity institutional or practical? According to Paul here, to unite, the practice is in the preaching. An institution is recognized by the baptism that is ministered. Here, Paul preached and Paul also baptized. There you have the practice. And then as the individual belief is currently, there you have the institution. This can be at least a starting point, if not the grand sum of church unity. To unite, the practice is in the preaching, and the institution is recognized by the baptism that is ministered. The complication we may be facing now is the audience of preaching had been moving out of the traditional institution where baptism takes place. Uh, When it comes to church unity, I wish to see it in my lifetime, as much as I would love to witness that, whether globally as a new movement to unify God's church, or locally in joyous, functional, and fruitful local ministry partnership or spiritual expressions of true and faithful worship together by institution or practice. But for reasons I've mentioned in the first part of the series, it's not exactly that simple in practice or by confinement of traditions. And we don't want mere lip service for unity either. Uh, More Bible in the next part of this podcast. Next, I would like to differentiate what I may call the separatist view and unified view of the church. Uh, This episode, I've talked about unity from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, In the next one, I would like to talk about possibly how to move forward. What may be the golden rule to unify the church according to the Bible, if I could even simplify it down to that, uh, to turn to practice from institution It is imperative that we begin from the right attitude of the heart before we attempt the mechanical configuration of church unity. Heart attitude comes first. Uh, This is part of the reason I appreciated Francis Chan's new book uh, about unity, which of course one day will become an old book as well. Hopefully by then even a book that we may no longer need because of what God had already accomplished by then for us. In the future, to unite us, more Bible in the next part in this series on church unity. Stay tuned. Uh, remember, remember, there's always only one King in all the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Even in the church, there is the kingdom of God manifesting. There could be pockets. Even in the church, that is the kingdom of God manifesting, there could be pockets of dissidents in the heads and hearts, quietly scheming a way to divide. But Jesus knows them all, one by one, each and by name. Jesus, He is the herald and head shepherd, who is able to discern His flock even if on some points there may be disagreements out of theological mystery or varying degrees of experiences according to the Bible, with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God will always unite the lovers of Jesus, at Him and for each other. He alone separates the goats from the sheep of His flock and sends away the wolves therein. And God will do so regardless of Paul or Luther, Calvin or Capphas, or any denominational label we carry. For all his children, marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit, which he gives within his kingdom, his church, his family, his great big house with many rooms. Talk to you next time.